each other and for the first time ever be this group of people in a room on a journey through the book of Jonah with me up here at the front. So I'm proud of you guys. You did it. Here we are as a team. And if you guys are visiting with us this morning, if this is your first time here, you landed on a Sunday with the youth guy. So here you are. Here you are, finally. You made it out to Zionsville Prez, and you got me. So this is ironically horrible for you. <laughs> so welcome. You guys are already more alive than the 9 o'clock. I mean, you guys hear this all the time, but oh my Lord, thank you for laughing. See, I thought that was funny. It wasn't as funny at the 9 o'clock, apparently, but it's funny here. So I, <laughs> it's all good. So I want to do a recap for you in case uh, you went on vacation this summer. In case you were somewhere else other than here for the last couple of weeks, we're on chapter three of Jonah. And in chapter one, we have a pretty straightforward situation. We have a guy named Jonah. He is the high prophet, as it were, of Israel at the time. The king at the time is Jeroboam II. And Jonah gets this message from God that says, Head to Nineveh, go tell them my judgment is coming against them. So Jonah jumps on a boat going the other direction from Nineveh. This guy really is good at his job. So this prophet, the voice piece of God, goes the opposite direction from Nineveh. We've all heard this, I'm sure, at some point in our lives. And then a storm hits. Jonah's napping in the bottom of the boat, which is also like another setup for another story later on in the New Testament, ironically enough. Another fun thing. Stay focused. Okay. Jonah's in the boat, napping at the bottom. And while he's in the bottom of this boat, uh, a storm hits. Storm comes. The pagans are going to their gods. Their gods are like, we're not real. And then they go to Jonah and they're like, Jonah, what are you doing, dude? This is not a good situation to be in. And Jonah's like, you're right. My bad. It's me. Can you throw me in the water now? Because that's the solution. Don't go to God. Don't ask God for help. Just say, please kill me. Okay? That's what's got to happen now. So Jonah gets thrown into the water. And while he's in the water having a terrible time, a fish comes up, snags him up, and scoots off with him for a little while. And these pagans actually turn to God. And they're like, all right, we're going to make some sacrifices. When we hit land, we're going back, and it's going to be great. God, we're going we're to honor this God for his protection. So that's Jonah 1. Pfft, kind of a weird situation. Jonah 2, as we heard, is from Jonah inside the fish. Now, I'm not a marine biologist. I don't know anything about fish biology, Someone told me that they can dissolve hooks if they get stuck in their mouth. I don't know if that's true or not. And if it is true, it's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. If it's not, I have bad friends who lie to me. And so this marine, marine biologist, that's not me. <laughs> Jonah's in the fish. And he's down in this fish. And if you've ever lived in a fish for three days, then you yourself know that that's when you start praying to God. So Jonah is praying and he goes to God. And in fact, uh, VeggieTales suggests there was a musical number involved. And that's not necessarily able to be confirmed or denied. None of us were there. But the veggie tales were pretty convincing. And then he's like spit up out of this fish. And he's vomited onto a beach. And now we have this really smelly guy on the beach. And I actually, who knows where he's vomited. Maybe he was vomited a long distance from Nineveh. But the point is, he eventually gets to Nineveh. So here we are at Jonah chapter 3. So I want to read that for us so we can get ready for what's to come. Go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, which is bad. You should have gone the first time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. The message he told him in chapter 1 was judgment. So I'm going to go there and judge. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. 
Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. And Jonah began to walk into the city going a day's walk. So real quick, uh, a walk, a day's walk in Israel is 20 miles. Is that a day's walk in your life? Not in mine. <laughs> and so it's a 20-mile walk is a day's walk. So when they say Nineveh was 20, three days walk, they're saying it's 60 miles. And so when they're talking about Nineveh, they're not necessarily just exclusively talking about Nineveh itself. They're talking about the greater Nineveh area. It's like when people say they're from Chicago, but they're not from Chicago. You know what I mean? I know you guys aren't from Chicago. That doesn't annoy you like it annoys me, okay? But it does. So these people, this is greater Nineveh. So Jonah goes in one day's walk. He goes 20 miles into a 60-mile city. Embarrassing. And he says, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, include, everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Has anyone sat in ashes? It's not what you do for fun. It's a weird situation. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink the water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth. And they shall cry mightily to God, all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had, had, that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. To God. Now, if you notice, inside chapter 3, there's like one thing that happens, but then there's not a lot that happens. Hey, as I'm reading this chapter, you've got like not a lot about Jonah, really, and actually a lot of it is about a really horrible city repenting. And even then, it's mostly about like cows and cattle at one point. Like they talk about the cows a lot, more than you'd think they would talk about the cows. There's a lot of cows. And so, when reading Jonah 3 and Jerry said, Elia, how about preaching? I was like, that sounds great. What am I preaching on? Jonah 3. Woo. So I get to Jonah 3, and I, and I, and I kind of have this moment of like, oh, that's kind of boring. <laughs> like, come on, give me some meat here. Let's do something crazy. Like, it's Jonah 3. Yeah, he goes to Nineveh, and Nineveh stops murdering people. Good job, Nineveh. You did it. <laughs> and I'm not as shocked as I feel like maybe I should be, okay? Because, I mean, it's the Bible, Dead people are coming to life all the time in this thing. So for a city to stop being a bad city, it's kind of like, okay, cool, good for you. You did a good job. The standard of amazing has kind of gone up because of Scripture, which is a good thing in some ways. But I also had this other feeling while reading Jonah 3 that said, okay, this book has been around for, my watch won't tell me, 2,300 years, roughly, right? It's been roughly around for that long. There's a chance that somebody somewhere might have gotten something good out of it. It's been around for 2,300 years throughout history. Like, there were plenty of points in history where they could have just destroyed all of this stuff and been like, nah, we don't need it. And Jonah survives. So there's got to be something in here. More than Nineveh just, like, stops being bad. So it's like, see ya, get better. I don't think that's that. That's all there is to it. So step one, when you're reading your scripture and you're underwhelmed by what it has to offer. Step one, when you're reading the Bible and you're like, lame, like, Look at your computer screen and start Googling. <laughs> Just start Googling. Just start asking questions. Step one is to ask more questions as you read your Bible. 
Because chances are there's something happening that you don't quite get. Because I don't know if you guys know, but you aren't second century Jews. I hope not. That's, that's another conversation entirely. Okay? The, we're, we don't get their jokes. We don't get their euphemisms. We don't get uh, their, their like, political commentary, their low-key, like, subversive little things that they're saying. Like, we don't get what's happening all the time, so we need to dig a little bit deeper. And Jonah 3 is somewhere where I didn't get what was going on, and so I decided to dig a little bit deeper. There's a lot of cool stuff going on in Jonah 3 when you just dig a little bit below the surface. See, in Jonah 3, I think there are a couple different characters in play, and I think that these characters have some information that we really need to get settled up and figure out what's going on. So Nineveh, they're a big deal. Nineveh is a big part of this whole story. This is a city that is a part of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria, big baddies. Have you seen the movie 300? If you haven't, don't see it. If you have, see it. Wasn't it awesome? Okay. And so the Assyrians are the baddies in that movie. They're like the guys that you don't want to win. Okay? The Assyrians are bad people in general. They're the kind of people that when every year when they go would go on their campaigns, campaign meaning their murder fests, and they would go attack people. And they would go and they would kill people pretty mercilessly. And then when they would capture people, they would run fish hooks through their mouths. And then they would take like these big old hooks through their mouths and like line them up and just be like, all right, come on, we're, we're going. Come on, back to, back to Nineveh, let's go. That was a part of it. Okay, these are the Assyrian people. This is who Jonah's like, put me in a fish. Don't send me to Nineveh. <laughs> put me in the water, please. I don't want to go to these people. Also, when Assyria is out campaigning, they're actually going against Israel quite a bit because they press up against each other. So you, it's easier to attack your neighbor than the person on the block over. So if you're going to go rob somebody, rob the person next door to you. It's, it's easier to get the stuff into your own home at that point and finders keepers. So... Syria goes, to, Syria goes into Israel and attacks and starts pushing these boundary lines back. Okay, because campaigns, you win some, you lose some. Israel starts to lose some. Assyria is taking land. So then what makes Israel kind of excited right now, okay, don't fall asleep on this, all right? This is a lot of history, but this is all building up to something really, really cool, all right? Jeroboam II is the king of Israel. Jeroboam II is the king of Israel, and he's a really, really bad king. <laughs> Like, just not good in any way. He's pretty much a train wreck from beginning to end. But he actually has one of the most prosperous seasons of ruling over Israel, which is very, this very ecclesiastical, like the sun shines on the wicked and the, and the, and the good, and so we, we don't like that. We like bad people to get bad things, but this bad person gets good things. He does all right. And one of the things he's known for and referenced to about in 2 Kings is that he pushes the boundary lines of Israel back to their original places. Which means that he's fought against Assyria, and he's fought these people and pushed them back and had some victories. And if you're a nation like Israel and you have some victories against a beast like Assyria, you start to feel a little bit of pride. You start to feel really good about yourself. And Yahweh is sort of a second thought. And of course, this is sort of a theme with Israel. Like, at the moment they get a hint of pride, they're like, where's the nearest idol? Right? For some reason, that's their gut response is, where's the nearest idol? Where's the nearest thing that I can run to to worship that isn't the God that we have? But granted, in their defense, idol worship and cults and these sorts of things, they're really good money makers. I mean, if you want to make some money, start a cult. Just go ahead and do it. You'll make a ton of money. You'll tell people what they want to hear. They'll keep giving you money. You'll then you'll tell them again what they want to hear, and they'll keep giving you money. And suddenly then you have five private planes, and they're like struggling to make their mortgage payments every month. It's a pretty good deal for you. 
And so this is what's going on is where we have these Israelites who have taken advantage of this sense of uh, nationalism and this pride that's going on. They're putting these idols forward. They're erecting temples that can, where they can worship Baal, Astra. And actually there's this one God. See, because there's like different types of idols. It's sort of like Timmy told a white lie. And like we know he's a, he, that's a sin. But we also don't like punch him in the face because Timmy told a white lie. Like that's, that's not a rational response to that. But if Timmy were to, I don't know, be a murderer, then we would want to put him in prison for a while. In the same way with these idols, there are some idols where you go, okay, Baal, okay, you're worshiping an idol, cut it out, that's not okay, that's a bad idea. And then there's some idols, aka Molech, where you're like, stay away from this guy, he is bad news, because Molech demands your children. See, Israel had not only found themselves in a situation where they're worshiping idols, but they're worshiping an idol that's demanding their children a sacrifice. It's something that God, you know, when they came out of Egypt, they came out of Egypt and they had to rebuild their nation, build laws and patterns and religion all from nothing as a people. And God was like, yeah, so step one, when you, when you sacrifice an animal, we're good. What he's really saying there is, we're good. Don't sacrifice your children to try and convince me how faithful you are. The cow is enough. Your child can live. And Israel has turned their back on this decree, going back to Molech which is kind of horrifying. That's the kind of thing that makes your skin crawl. That's like a good horror movie, if you ask me. Like that's, oof. So Israel at this time, worshiping their idols, basically kind of jumping off the rails. Nineveh, like I said, it's this really weird, like, politics in Assyria, nuts. So there's like a high king, and then there's like city-states. It's sort of like president and governors, except they're all called kings, because nobody wants to be in the short chair at the meeting. Right? And so all these, all these kings are kind of over their city-states. And what's going on in Nineveh at this time is within the last year to a year and a half, maybe two years if you want to stretch it out, there was uh, a death of one of these kings, a very strong, prominent military leader in the Assyrian Empire. Gone. Okay, that's bad news. We don't like it. That's bad news. The Assyrian people feel bad about this. They're a little more superstitious than we are, I would say. They kind of start to lean into the sense of like, ooh, are the gods against us? Do they not find favor with us? Like, what's, what's going on here? In that same window of time, you also have a total solar eclipse occurring over another one of the military capitals in the Assyrian Empire. Which, again, we like total solar eclipses. We're like, this is awesome, where are the little glasses? And like, where's the cardboard boxes? And I want to look at this thing, this is cool. Back then, they're thinking, the sun is gone. <laughs> We're dead. <laughs> so there's a little bit different approach for them. So when the solar eclipse comes through, there's a death of a general. And as a result of all this chaos that's happening in there, and there's multiple city-states, and there's all these people vying for power. And like, this is just a tense time and make another great movie. Uh, we have all these little insurrections and rebellions popping up in different places. And so people are suddenly kind of going, okay, even more, there's just this instability that's freaking people out, and they're not happy about it. So then we hit Jonah 3, and some man covered in fish vomit shows up at this giant city. He's the wrong nationality. He should probably be dead at this point, but nobody wants to touch him. Thank you, fish. And he goes in, and he starts saying, hey, everybody, you're going to die. What do you do to those people when they step out in, in the center of Carmel? <laughs> Carmel, you're all dead in 40 days. <laughs> Sorry. Like, 
you look at those people and you're like, nah, you're weird. I don't like it. This is nuts. We need to call a doctor. For Jonah, the Ninevites had seen the signs leading up to this moment. They were aware that whether it was an act of God or not, there was a solar eclipse and that freaks them out. <laughs> they were aware that whether it's a sign from God or not, one of their generals had just recently died. And there may be some kind of movement against them now, kind of the sense that the tides of fate are turning on them a little bit. And they see that there's political and social unrest in their own communities and they're wondering, okay, there's not peace here. What's going on? Who's against us right now? And then Jonah, the messenger of the God of Israel, Yahweh, shows up and says, 40 days. See, that message suddenly sounds different to the people of Nineveh. When you recognize that their world is crumbling around them, that the stability around them is changing, that they're, they're on shifting sands, and suddenly a man says, 40 days, and you're done. See, ironically, the nation of Israel has a very different way of coping with prophets. Okay, they have a very different way of approaching them. See, Israel is a, a lucky nation. See, they follow Yahweh, and at this time during the story of Jonah, they actually have four active prophets. That's four. That's, that's, that's three more prophets than you really need. And that's four more prophets than you really want. Right? Because the prophet's job is to tell you that like, because of what you're doing, your city will burn. That's kind of their message in some ways. See, Hosea is one of these active prophets and he marries a prostitute. In order to demonstrate to Israel, you're a prostitute. Nobody wants that guy at the dinner party. <laughs> Nobody wants the misery, doom, and gloom people there. We have Amos and we have Joel as well. Amos at one point is preaching, is, is prophesying in front of a temple erected to Baal. And the crowds want to kill him. The priesthood want him dead. It's like, the only reason he survives is Jeroboam actually like swoops in at the last second and is like, hey, we can't kill this guy. And that's actually why the scriptures say that he had a season of prosperity is because he, was, he respected the prophets and defended them versus submitting to the will of the people and killing them. Doesn't necessarily, need, doesn't necessarily mean that things changed. <laughs> they just weren't dead. So the prophets get to survive for another day and, and begin preaching and, and prophesying against Israel. Nineveh as a city, when faced with the voice of a prophet, saw the signs and made a transition in their lives. Not only from the people on the streets, but the king down to the cows. Okay, when you're writing a story and you want to make a point, you talk about how the cows are holier than other people. Okay, that's kind of like a joke there for everyone reading it. Because the Israelites are reading the story and they're recognizing that this time historically Israel has four prophets three of whom are prophesying against the nation, saying, you are heading to destruction. And Israel's response to these prophets is, shut your mouth! Shut up! You're an idiot. We hate you. Go away. Go away. Goodbye. Okay? The response is, go away! The followers of Yahweh don't want the mouthpiece of Yahweh in their nation. And the pagans... Respond to the mouthpiece of Yahweh with repentance. Even when repentance isn't described to them, they're just told, you're going to die. And they go, well, what can we do? Let's just try some stuff out. Let's see what can happen. We'll make it everywhere. Everybody's going to do this now. There's a really cool French philosopher named Lacan. Not LaCroix, 
Lacan. <laughs> this guy, Lacan, ta- uh, talks about this kind of wordplay thing in his work, and he talks about this idea of the, the French word for symptom. Can you, I'm sure you guys could guess. It's pretty simple. Symptom. Oh, there you go. And then the French word for holy man, Saint-Homme, sound eerily similar. And linguistics, I don't know. I don't know how into that you guys want to get or how excited about that you get. I think it's super intriguing to figure out, like, what kind of words sound like each other. And was that a pun? Did someone mean to do that? Was that just an accident? Or was that, like, God moving in a really weird, eerie way? I don't know. Now, the French, these two words, when they come next to each other, you have this idea of the symptom and the holy man being very similar. So when you get a headache, what's the first thing you do? Any ideas? You're an Advil girl. All right. Advil. I prefer the Tylenol, extra strength. We keep a jar of like 7,000 of them available at all times. (laughs) Thanks. And this Tylenol goes in and what does it do? It covers up the symptom. See, we just think it's getting rid of a headache. But if you want to approach it in a different way, you see the headache as a messenger from your body trying to communicate something to you. The headache is telling you, drink more water, you idiot. (laughs) Your headache is telling you, sleep again, because you didn't get a good one. (laughs) Your headache is telling you, your life is too stressful, change it. Your headache is trying to communicate something to you, similar to a holy man. And our gut reaction in many ways is to silence that symptom by taking something to get rid of it. And this is what Lacan's getting into. And I think this is such an intriguing idea when you approach the story of Jonah, where you have the people of Nineveh who get a metaphorical spiritual headache, the headache being Jonah or maybe the headache, you know, whatever, the headache being whatever it is. You have these symptoms that are being pointed out. You have this holy man who has shown up and says, y'all are going to die. And Nineveh's response is not to take Tylenol, but to drink a glass of water metaphor for Jesus. I don't know. (laughs) That metaphor didn't play out like I liked it to. But instead of silencing that symptom, they're responding to the problem. Does that make sense? Have you heard that old that old question when your wallpaper's peeling, your stove is on, and the the fire alarm's going off, what do you take care of first? They say, nothing, get out, your house is on fire. Have you heard that before? Super, yeah. That's what's going on here. See, Nineveh is standing there and they're saying, okay, all signs pointing to some God being very upset with me. <laughs> I better change. <laughs> because God's upset. I should figure this out. I should engage with the creator of the universe. I should probably at some point go, okay, stop murdering people. And do that. So they do. Israel, on the other hand, goes, okay, we got three, three prophets here who are super annoying. Shut up. Go away, please. They're like, give me more Advil. And they're silencing the symptom. See, the symptom is a result of following idols. The symptom is a result of abandoning the orphans. It's not protecting the elderly. See, Israel at this time is a nation that has abandoned everything God has set them forth to be. And when someone calls them out on it and points out that, look, you're sick, they go, we're fine. Go away. And you're sort of like, what are you talking about? This is nuts. So what I see going on in Jonah 3 is this interesting juxtaposition between the nation of Israel and the nation's city-state of Nineveh, where you have a very religious people 
who literally stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and watched a cloud come down from heaven with lightning and thunder and God reciting to them the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Having gotten to this point in their life where they are now sacrificing infants and they are worshiping other gods and they're abandoning the needs of their community to make a buck, not responding to the mouthpiece of God. Come on, people. They're not responding to the mouthpiece of God. They're saying, shut up and go away. And Nineveh has said, okay. All right. Let's sort it out. What can we do? Let's humble ourselves. Let's approach this as something that can be solved. As something that we can engage in, that God is trying to meet us in. Let's step into that space with him. So the question I have for you is this. Because this is the question that comes to my mind when I hear about Nineveh and Israel and I'm thinking, we got all these weird kings and there's solar eclipses and there's, it's just nuts. There's a lot going on here. Uh, The question that stands out to me as a result of this comparison is this. Who are you? Are you Israel or Nineveh? And when we try to look at this in real life, here's what I'm talking about when I ask you if you're Israel or Nineveh. When we talk about the symptom, the holy man, we talk about the things that are trying to tell us the truth. Like, if you have unexplained knee pain, some people believe there might be something going on internally, like emotionally, that might be associated with that. Now, you may disagree with me, and you can do your thing, that's fine, I'm not here. I mean, it's not always, it's sometimes. But sometimes you have to ask the question. Like, here's another one. When you come home from work and you say hi to your teenage child and their first response is to roll their eyes, get, like huff at you and storm out of the room, you have to ask, you have to ask the question, is this because they're a teenager? And like, teenagers, right? Like, is this because they're a teenager? Or is this because they're so sick and tired of you stepping into every room and making it all about you every single time you open your mouth? And they are full of disdain and disgust for you. And you have to ask the question. Because what happens when you come home or you get, let's just say, when you get to work and every single employee is sort of like just really kind of snarky to you in a really, really negative way. Is this like playfully fun sarcasm and we're like all friends here? Or like you have to ask the question, is this, is this a symptom of somebody who actually thinks I'm the worst because I am actually the worst? Now here's the problem with this question. It almost every single time comes back to the scariest question you can ask. Is it me? Is it really me? Do I, am I fighting with my wife every single, every single week? Because when she says something to me that I think is a little annoyingly or maybe a little uninformed, I give her this like, you're kind of a dumb person look. And I don't even know that I'm doing it. Am I degrading my wife unintentionally? I have to ask, is it me? And I have to be willing to listen to the holy man telling me. And the hope is that the holy man is something like a friend who can come to you and say, you're a jerk. And can tell you the truth that you are a jerk. And that you're unkind to the people around you. And that they have the courage to come to you and tell you the truth. So that you can make a change in your own life. 
The holy man in my household is our dog, Kyra. This is not a joke. This is real life. Every single time Aaron and I get into a fight, we fight. It's real. Every single time we get into a fight, we're both yellers. We're really good at it. Every single time our voices start to raise it all, Kyra, who's curled up in a ball somewhere on a couch, gets up and leaves the room. Not a joke. She knows. She, like, knows a fight's coming, and she's like, I'm out. See you later. I'm out. And I, we've tested it a couple times just to see, like, just to mess with her. So, like, we'll, like, kind of, like, raise our voices, just kind of, like, to be silly and playful. And sometimes I like to start fake arguments. It's probably a bad idea. I'm, it's only five years in, all right, people? I'm going to figure it out. But I like to start fake arguments. And, and Kyra will get up and start to leave. And we're like, no, Kyra, it's fine. Come back, come back. But she's the holy man in our marriage. She's how we know we're starting a fight. Because <laughs> sometimes we don't even know we're starting a fight. And then Kyra starts to get up. And we're like, ooh, are we like raising our voices? <laughs> are we like actually upset with each other right now? And Kyra has become this barometer, this, this truth teller in our relationship. In a really, really weird way. So the question that you have to walk away from to this morning is this. Who's the truth teller in your life? Who has been telling you what's actually going on in your existence? And have you silenced them? Or have you listened to them? And keep in mind, listening can be incredibly painful. Because there's nothing worse than hearing from your best friend, I hate who you are, and I can't stand to be with you anymore. So please step away from me, and I need distance but that may be the most true thing you need to hear in your life because you are so caught up in the lie that you are fine. So are you Israel who will silence the symptoms, silence the holy man, or are you going to be Nineveh and invite the holy man in and one third of the way through the journey, you're going to respond and you are going to repent and you are going to look at your own life and ask the question, am I the problem? And how can I change that? Dear Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us a space like this to come to you and ask some of the hard questions. But we also thank you for your son, Jesus. The work he did to give us grace and forgiveness so that we can have the freedom and the courage to step into the darkest parts of our lives, knowing that we are loved regardless. God, I pray that you would reinforce that truth in us, that we are loved regardless of the darkest things within us, within us. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage to go diving in and listen to the truth that you have for us. In your son's great and holy name, amen.